Hi, I'm Cameron, and I don't just read comics, I love them. Today, you're listening to the final episode of our three-part read-through of the magnificent Image Comics series, Saga, by Brian K. Vaughn and Fiona Staples. We're going to be going over Saga Book 3, which collects issues 37 through 54 of this award-winning series. If you want a little more context into these episodes, I'd go check out our episodes on Books 1 and 2. Unfortunately, there was a little audio trouble, so the second half of this podcast was re-recorded. Russell came over from the kindness of his heart to re-record and answer the same questions that I had already asked him. You'll hear us mention it, but honestly, I think that this episode is just wonderful. As always, follow us on Instagram at Cameron Reads Comics, and there are going to be complete spoilers ahead. You have been warned. All right, so here is your summary for Saga Book 3. Since we last saw them, Hazel, Marco, and Alana are together and finally reunited. Alana is also quite pregnant. Hurling through space, Prince Robot IV, Isabel, and Petricor join them in their wooden tree space shuttle. Due to their lack of fuel, they need to land on the planet Fang. What was originally intended to be a quick gas stop became a six-month stay. On Fang, they meet a planet of indigenous bush baby-like creatures. One of the most endearing is a young gentleman named Curdy. He develops a relationship and friendship with Hazel. Meanwhile, in the world of Gwendolyn, Sophie, and Lion Cat, Sophie declares that she wants to become a freelancer. And she's finally old enough to intern with one. Gwendolyn is not enthusiastic about this idea. While they're establishing their lives, the will starts looking for them to reunite. Hazel grows into her body. She learns how to utilize both of her parents' capabilities as well. She knows how to fly with her wings, and she starts learning different magic spells. One evening, Isabel catches Curdy and Hazel practicing spells on some bugs, making them explode like fireworks. Isabel tries to help Hazel realize that she's being cruel, but Hazel says some really terrible remarks, and yells at Isabel to leave her alone. Prince Robot IV finds Isabel outside, and he says that they need to get back to his son Squire. In order to cross the war-torn planet, Isabel agrees to go as a scout. Early on in her journey, Isabel runs into a new freelancer known as the March, an alien with two heads and a magic bullwhip. The magic about the bullwhip is that they can wrap it around a ghost like Isabel. They find out that Isabel is soul-bound to someone on that planet. They have the power to kill Isabel. She just has to tell them who she's soul-bound to and where they are to get out. She just has to tell them who she's soul-bound to and where that person is in order to get out alive. Isabel doesn't spill and unfortunately it leads to her death. Hazel feels the loss of Isabel deeply. I mean, they were soul-connected. She felt Isabel's loss deeply within her soul. She regrets it even more after their unfavorable last interaction. On Wreath, the Will finds himself in trouble. He gets fired from being a freelancer. While he gets this call, he's hooking up with a female alien and her boyfriend walks in. The Will tries to use his lance on the guy, but it has been deauthorized and thus deactivated. He makes it out alive but he's no longer the Will anymore. He's just Billy. Hazel and Curdy talk about where they go after they die. Curdy's people are super religious, 
and they think that there's a place they go after they die. Hazel doesn't believe in anything. And in this weird conversation, Hazel kisses Curdy. Gwendolyn and Sophie find themselves in a meeting with Special Agent Gale. During the meeting, she swaps a mysterious box that has the potential to cause a lot of harm. Gale takes this box and threatens Gwendolyn's life if she gives the news to the press that she, a Mooney, was collaborating with Landfall. Due to his grieving of his missing son and the post-traumatic stress that he has had in his years at war, Prince Robot IV takes some old fadeaway. He reveals that he has feelings for Alana. In order to coerce her into sex, he points his armed cannon at her and her unborn child, but eventually transitions into pointing it at himself. Robot wants to commit suicide. Petrichor receives some news that the planet Thang is headed towards a time suck. This means that nobody on the planet will make it out alive unless they leave Fang right now. Petrichor tries to convince Curdy's mother, Jabara, to round up everyone and get out. Jabara has faith that her god will deliver her and her family to safety. Marco walks in on Alana and Prince Robot, insisting that violence isn't necessary to resolve this situation. Robot shoots Marco, but Marco is protected by his shield. The blow from the blast knocks Marco into a wall and knocks him out. Alana then hits Robot in the head with a lamp, knocking him out. While all of this is going on, the freelancer, the March, makes their way to the family's camp. They find Curdy and Hazel playing hide-and-seek, and they threaten his life if Marco and Alana don't come out. The Will finds Gwendolyn and Sophie after their meeting. He apologizes for how they'd left things and offers Sophie an apprenticeship to become a freelancer just like him. Sophie turns down the offer because she's found that there are other jobs to make change. And the Will walks away feeling rejected. Alana comes out with a blaster aimed towards the march. She gets caught in the magic bullwhip, and while things seem bleak, Marco grabs a blaster and rapidly shoots the freelancer and kills him. Petrichor takes the fuel from the march's ship and urges them to get out while they still can. Alana and Marco offer Jabara's family a place on the ship in order to avoid the time suck, and Jabara says that they have no intention of leaving Fang. Alana desperately pleads with Jabara to come aboard, but Jabara believes that her family will be delivered into safety. The Landfall Coalition forces are outside the time suck. They are expected to release the current payload, meaning the mysterious box that Gwendolyn gave to Gale. It initiates the time suck. The family's rocket takes off in time, but it is a super rough takeoff. Everyone is shaken up thoroughly. And Alana was slammed into a wall, and by the time they reconvene, Alana reveals that she can't feel their son kicking anymore. They lost him. In a beautiful sequence of pages, Hazel narrates how she's feeling, but the images on the page show Curdy, who appears to be drowning in the time suck. He declares his faith until his eventual demise. The family heads to a new place called Abortion Town. Because they need to get the child out of Alana's body before it threatens Alana's health, they play it off as though Alana is carrying Prince Robot's child in order to calm suspicion. But, due to how late she is in her pregnancy, they legally cannot operate on her. They send her to a back alley area called the Badlands, where she can have her operation. During their time on this new planet, Hazel confides in Petrichor, because Hazel is a being from two worlds. 
both wreath and landfall. She knows that Petrichor has both parts, meaning anatomically, and she is afraid about the way that her body's going to change. What if everything goes wrong and Hazel dies? Petrichor comforts Hazel and lets her know that she is unlike anyone who has ever existed, making her like everyone who has ever existed. And because of that, Hazel is never going to be alone. Marco blames himself for the loss of their son, convinced that violence always has a cost. Alana believes that it happened because the universe is cruel and random. Oddly enough, while this conversation is happening, the group gets attacked by a bunch of giant turd monsters. Yes, you heard me, Collector. Yes, you heard me correctly. These are monsters made out of feces. And in the battle, Alana blasts fire from her hands, defeating the foes. Alana is gaining magic ability due to her son's magic ability inside of her body. This culminates in a huge way when the unborn Curti materializes in front of them on their way to the Badlands. This astral projection takes a heavy toll on Alana's body as well as an emotional toll on the family. While the family is on their way to the Badlands, Petricor is left back at abortion town and almost gets robbed by some local thieves. Prince Ropa IV rescues her, and they share a drink and eventually a kiss. At the abortion clinic, as Alana is in her surgery, Hazel and Curdy bond privately as brother and sister one last time. Curdy asks Hazel to sing to him a lullaby before he dies, and she does. She sings him one that Isabel used to sing to her, and she does this as Curdy fades out of existence. The will gets kidnapped, and in the commotion, Sweet Boy is shot, and the will passes out reminiscing about his childhood. He was abused by his father as a child, and the person who rescued him was his uncle, a freelancer. When he wakes up, he's on a ship, captured by a woman named Ian. The will had killed her lover, and she is seeking revenge. The will now becomes her slave. Eventually, Marco, Alana, Petricor, Hazel, and Prince Robot IV return to the planet housing Upshur, Doff, Squire, and Goose. Hazel meets Squire for the first time, and she recognizes him as her new brother. Prince Robot IV and Petricor's romance becomes more serious. She wants to keep it casual, while he wants to make it serious. Upshur and Doff offer Alana and Marco the choice to share their story for the worlds to hear in order to protect their safety. They could end up living on Upshur and Doff's homeworld. Squire and Hazel become closer as siblings do, and they fight like siblings do. Unfortunately, Squire steals Hazel's favorite toy, Ponkonk. Prince Robot comes to Upshur and Doff one evening and reveals to them that the destruction of Fang wasn't some accident. It was caused by the Landfall Coalition and Wreath's teams partnering to use a WMD to lead it to the time suck. He will cooperate in sharing that story in order to get the same deal that Marco and Alana are offered. Squire tells Prince Robot IV that he wants to visit his mother's grave. As Prince Robot is explaining to his son why he can't visit the kingdom that they've been banished from, Squire brings up what the will said about his father. Robot had killed the stock, an innocent woman. In anger, Robot starts to choke his son, but he apologizes. He just wants to start over with his life. 
Marco recently decides that he wants to become a writer. He's even written a secret book. Alana is so proud of him. During this time, Doff is wandering the forest in order to get a photo of a beautiful alien. He stumbles upon Eanth and the Will. They threaten to kill him if he doesn't tell them where Marco and Alana are. Doff jumps on Eanth and tries to subdue her, but she fires on him. He dies, but not without one last act of heroism. He let the Will escape. Squire runs away from the group. They all decide to go looking for him. As he gets himself lost and in trouble, Ian saves him from being eaten by carnivorous wildlife. Prince Robot stumbles upon the person who wants to see him most, the Will. The Will reminds Robot how he unceremoniously killed the stock. Upon his searching for Squire, Goose stumbles upon Doff's dead body. Petrichor realizes that they aren't on the island alone and shoots up a signal flare. Eanth is holding Squire hostage and threatens to kill him. In order to become a martyr for Marco and Alana's family as well as Squire's life, Prince Robot offers to show the Will how he can kidnap Hazel. Marco overhears this happen. The story cuts to Squire and Eanth. Alana comes in time to save Squire, but she gets shot in the process. Upshur retrieves Eanth's weapon and shoots her with it. She reveals to Upshur that she killed Doth and begs him to kill her. Upshur doesn't. In order to save a robot, Marco lies to the will that his entire family had left the island. It's just them three now. Marco says that he'll surrender without a fight if the will lets Prince Robot the Fourth go. In two of the most bombastic pages of this series, the will says, pass, and continues to rip off Prince Robot's head murdering him. Marco charges towards the Will after watching this brutality, and the Will tries to use his lance, but it breaks on him. Marco tackles the Will off of a cliff, and they crash into Eanth's ship. Marco starts to strangle the Will, and to get Marco off of him, the Will ignites the ship. As they start hurtling towards the atmosphere, Marco creates lightning with magic. He electrocutes the ship, and effectively the Will. Marco knocks out the will. He grabs his shield with the intention of killing him. He decides that that isn't who he is. He looks out the window of the ship towards the planet he just left with his family on it. And behind him, the will plunges his hand through Marco's chest. The story pans to a beautiful moment of Hazel and Marco on the beach. Marco describes the beauty of childbirth while Hazel is distracted by the fact that she came out of her mother's womb at the same time Feces does. In Hazel's final narrations of this volume, she says, I started out as an idea, but I ended up something more. Not much more, to be honest. It's not like I grew up to be some great war hero or any sort of all-important savior. But thanks to my parents, at least I get to grow old. Not everybody does. And we are back. Hi, Russell. Hey, how's it going? Russell, we made it to episode three. I know, we're here. It's like... 
exciting and scary. All of those things. Oh my gosh, that was, that sounded like a narration that Hazel would do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. I would need to be a little bit more um, ambiguous, though. I feel like she is. I'm like mysterious. Sometimes I feel like Hazel's narrations are a little ambiguous, but then I'm like Brian Kevon, are you just that good? You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was some. I mean, even on the topic of narration, of the the mirroring of the 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 her famous line of "Thanks to my parents, I get to grow old." Oh my god! Not gosh. all of us do. Not all of us do. I'm like, actually, here, let's just get into the freaking third volume. They were they've been. It's crazy. So we when we talked about why the last man when we were reading it, and this isn't spoilers for why the last man for my listeners, but. Brian K. Vaughn is very intentional and thoughtful about how he is crafting the grand narrative of his stories. When he started Why the Last Man, he already knew what the last panel was going to be. Um, and so you see that. You see illusions that happened in the first issue now paying off 54 issues later. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty insane. And did you notice that Alana in Volume 3 had said, this has taken place over seven years. Yeah, with the whole, uh, it's been seven years since you proposed that whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. That's, it's really well done, too, to like kind of keep you engaged in seeing the broader picture of the story for that seven-year period. Yeah. You know what it makes, makes me think is that the issues that have been coming out, because Saga, you know, standard comic issues are coming out weekly or like monthly. So the weekly comics that are, or the monthly comics that are coming out, are what's happening in the story in real time. Like, because, you know, if you think about it, 12 months a year, uh, 54 issues, that's about six years. Oh, yeah. So it's like, dang. Wait, is that is that six years? I don't know, but it's long. It's more than... That's all. It's like five years. So I'm not it's a like... mathematician, okay? <laughs> it's okay. Russell, thank you for your patience with me. Okay, Um. so Russell, volume three. Let's just, same question I start with every time. What'd you think? Um, yeah, it was, it was a lot. It was not a lot in a bad way at all. A lot in a great way. Just, it felt like it hit harder than the other two volumes for sure. Because now we have these characters that we have built up relationships with. And with some of them, we're beginning to have to say goodbye to those characters. Uh, and so it felt... I think it felt somewhat taxing in that sense. Um, but, I mean, I, I really thoroughly loved it and enjoyed it. I think these volumes are getting easier and easier just to fly through, um, you know, because they're, like, so gripping. Uh, so I can't, like, put it down when I'm, like, kind of in a reading session. Um, yeah, so I guess those are my, my general thoughts. Yeah, and I feel that same way because as we, for the listeners behind the scenes, but uh, we were doing this on a schedule. And so like, it was no problem really to kind of finish these books within our allotted time frame to do it. Like I read, I picked this up last Sunday and I read through half of it in one sitting, which is, you know, nine issues is, which is not standard for me in one big sit to read and finish comics. I didn't, I haven't done something like that since I was like 10. So I, I, I find you're, you're right. And I, it's going to be a struggle now going into the next, yeah. phase of this listening because it's not going to be like that right yeah that's true <laughs> i think i might just go back to reading it monthly because post issue 54 this book is on hiatus right yeah it's a 
it's a tough thing to especially get to where we ended here and to know that to know that I don't have an ending in hand for the whole narrative and that I need to kind of be patient with that. That's a hard thing for me to tell myself to do. Yeah. Um, so, Russell, do you have a favorite moment in book three? Yes, I do. Um, yeah, I think for me, uh, the favorite moment here comes usually like usually I, I love to pick, I think, moments that are just sort of like happy or, or like beautiful in a happy way or something. This moment was like kind of tragic <laughs> tragically beautiful or, or something like that yeah. I, I just i loved the panel uh like the art for this and like the expression here but uh, and then also the meaning here but this comes when they're about to like squire just decided to to run away and they're about to go on the search for squire try to find him um and they're telling hazel like you know stay back wait on the ship and she's like i want to come with you and then she pretty much says do you pinky promise you'll be right back? Uh, and then you have this beautiful panel of Alana, like leaning down and just looking in her daughter's eyes and saying, I pinky promise. Um, no, she says, I don't pinky promise. I pinky swear. I pinky swear. Okay. Sorry. Russ, come on, man. <laughs> it's right in front of my eyes. I just decided not to read it. <laughs> Russ um, rejected that. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That's I, <laughs> literally the same thing. I don't <laughs> No, one is a promise and one is a swear. Okay. Swear is a guarantee. A promise is like, I'll do the best I can. Russell uh, disagrees. I, I just, I guess I didn't know the rules, but that's okay. I think he swear that I will teach you the rules. <laughs> <laughs> now you know the difference. Um, okay. Russell is really pissed that he hit his mic. <laughs> um, so actually, you know what my favorite moment was, which is I guess I had a kind of different favorite moment in this text. Mine was when Alana was having her, uh, like operation post abortion town. And she goes in and, um, she's seeing ghosts of her, uh, non-existent son or unborn child of what he could have been. And the interactions between him and Hazel were so, heartbreaking and like tender but also so sweet and wholesome uh and it was when she was getting her uh i guess i don't know is it is i don't mean this to be offensive but is it an abortion yeah i'm like okay it i'm is. like post yeah anyways 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 we need to get she's getting her operation done and he is fading out and hazel who had recently lost her babysitter is now playing the role of older sister to this semi-fictitious younger brother and she sings him a lullaby and she sings him the lullaby that she was taught by Isabel, which is like, Oh my gosh, I just thought it was so beautiful. And his, he, uh, Curdy asks, asks her, please be like a famous singer one day. And it's like, Oh my gosh. Like, yeah. Yeah. And the, and the writing to that lullaby that Isabel had crafted is so brilliant. There's, I I think that one of the things I love about this is the charisma in these characters. Like mm -hmm. they are so, and this is weird to say about fictional beings, but like they are so themselves. Yeah. You know, like we, we could hear Isabel singing that lullaby. Yeah. It's weird to have like, it's the ghost of Isabel, like still with you. And Isabel herself is like this ghost of a character. That's like a fragment of what, who she was in her own life. It's like this weird, like, <laughs> 
even after <laughs> even after her ghost life, she's still like kind of haunting you with her her legacy and her memory. Yeah, I think that was I think a major theme in this in this book as opposed to the others is kind of the impermanence of people and then their lasting effect on you. Yeah, and, yeah, that's that's a good point. Uh, going in, did you have? Oh wait, wait. After reading volume two, you and I both agree that that's where we felt the story gains its soul. And we kind of really get to know these characters in their day to day that we we understand those characters like natures. Right. Um, how did you feel about this volume now that we know all of our main characters? Yeah, I think it felt like. It, I mean, I, I think to me, it feels like once we get to, to know, maybe this too is like, I'm partially conditioned by why the last man is like, I'm afraid when I know too much about my characters, right? Because then maybe bad things are going to happen. Um, and so it, it kind of felt like we have all of these characters, we know what they stand for, we know their values, we know a pretty decent amount about them. And now it's like, and now we're going to, to see what the logical conclusion is for, for each of them and what like is going to be brought about, which feels like it's going to be drastically different, at least in its meaning from character to character. Like I, I can't stop thinking about like Marco and robot the fourth who are like the significant kind of catchy, super off guard deaths that occur right in the last issue here. Mm -hmm. And I mean, with those two, it like it's meant to it's meant to hurt you yeah. when each of them die because those are people that you've both gotten to know so well and learn different things about. Um, I mean, really, like what? Like two of the top five, at least, if not. I mean, Marco's like top two, right? Like who the story centered around, yeah. essentially. To Especially some with how much you and I in these last episodes have been talking about him. Yeah, and so, like, it just feels like this has been a volume of, like, Saga 3 has been a volume where it's like, okay, now we have all these characters, and now, like, things are just going to start happening to them. Good, bad, ugly, tragic, all of the above. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I, th I think you're right, because I think where we really kind of adored book two is is where Alana and Marco had the... It, the first two volumes are kind of these characters and figuring out how they interact with one another. It's like they're, they're dynamics, you know, the will is just getting Sophie and meeting Gwendolyn and, uh, Marco and Alana are like, okay, we have this baby now, but we barely know each other. So we're going to figure it out. And then volume two, they have their big blow up and it's like, mm -hmm. ah, <laughs> and so, yeah. uh, and we're separated from our kid. And now it's like, I guess they're one big cohesive family unit. And, how how now that we know each other we are comfortable with another we we've been together for 7 years how how do we go about doing life together now uh for our daughter and i think they're kind of making those decisions as stuff like that's happening you know they're should we live with upshur and off on you know this what's the planet i don't know I, on the fish planet yeah. <laughs> should we uh should we go do these other things which is it's it's a it's a definite yeah. tone shift even like should we be accepting of this rodent family to like live with us, you know? Oh my gosh. I didn't even take any, no I'd love to get into that. <laughs> That's the commentary yeah, that I think the meta commentary in this volume is 
Whoa. Oh, for sure. But yeah, BKV loves it for sure. Uh, yeah, but that's definitely this one feels more than more than the past two volumes of like uh, he's got he's got some stuff to say about about our world that we're living in, um, and this is this is the medium for conveying some of those thoughts as well. Well, shoot, yeah. we can get we can briefly touch on a, a moment that he had in this. You want to talk about another meta thing uh, about Brian K. Vaughn in general, and I guess how he feels is when Marco starts to become a writer. And then, right. and then Upshur, yeah, it's Upshur comes up to him and he says, or Marco's like, I'm choosing this nonviolent profession, blah, blah, blah. And Upshur's like, yeah, people have died because of what I've written. And so hmm. you can either be a pacifist or you can be a writer, but you can't be both because when you put ideas in people's heads, they will act on those. And it's like, whoa. Yeah. Yeah, that's very true. There's, uh, it, it does feel, I felt like that, um, even with the Oswald heist, anytime like there's some sort of like author thing, you feel like you have this piece of Brian K. Vaughn that's like coming out on the page to some extent um, as he's like sort of endowing his profession onto one of the characters that he is writing as a result of his profession. It's like this weird, yeah, meta thing. Um, it makes me think, actually, I, I recently watched Parasite or I'm like about to finish Parasite. I, I, Wait, I've, what do you mean you're about to finish? I've Parasite? been watching this movie for like a month because I'm like, and this is you know maybe it's white privilege, maybe it's other things, but like my ethnocentrism or whatever talking. But I'm just like, how how I'm about to go to bed. I'm watching TV. How invested am I in reading subtitles right now? <laughs> and that's why it's taken me a month. Oh, that's so sad. It's good. I'm on the last twenty minutes. But anyways, uh, during his acceptance speaks. Uh, acceptance speech bong joon ho says uh the most creative is the most personal and that's a scorsese quote it was it happened at the oscars and so um i think you're seeing that with brian Kavon in this text is he's putting himself in it because number one and you if you guys keep reading uh brian Kavon's works you will find that it's so creative and i think it is very personal so I'm a fan. Oh, uh, moving forward in this arc, Russell, did you have a favorite character? Um, yeah, I think I did. I think, uh, I mean, I think in this volume more than others, it felt like there's so much of like the depth and the humanity of so many characters are kind of just at the forefront. And so I, I feel like, there were so many characters that I felt some sort of connection to. Um, I did. I mean, I really just love. I love the development of Hazel. I love that she's our narrator and kind of our main character, like in a broad sense. But then also she's like so innocent and like most of the time things are happening to her rather than like with her or something, you yeah. know. Um, but I, I love. I love that she's still a child in the midst of this, even though she's undeniably been, you know, marked and affected by the things around her. Um, her babysitter died and she has to deal. I mean, that's like what a what a humanizing kind of loss of innocence moment that this person that I just had harsh words with is now gone. And I don't get to rectify that. Yeah. Um, and so she's experiencing these really 
kind of humanizing, brutal moments. Um, but at the same time, I mean, a- and really, like, with the, the, you brought up with the imaginary brother, um, yeah. that she's, like, there's something so sort of gut-wrenching about, oh, and he's, and bye. That was, like, a nice, you know, half hour you had. But now we're gone. Um, but then she still has the, these moments of just, like, childhood innocence. It's not like she's this pessimistic, jaded child. There's something, I think, weirdly beautiful about how childlikeness can persist in the midst of darkness that's, like, present within that. Even, like, with her imaginary brother, like, farting, and she's like, ha, that was so good, you know, <laughs> and, like, stuff like that. It's, like, these really beautiful, pure... Uh, I think you had even texted me before, but the, the fidget spinner. Do you even know what a fidget spinner is? Like yeah. lines like that are like so brilliant because she's still a child. And that means that she likes gross stuff. She likes um, being petty at times, you know, like all of those things. Um, yeah, I don't know. She's just a really like beautifully written character, I think. Yeah, um, I think I love in. Especially in this volume, because she's older, you know, she's six, she's seven, she can, I guess, uh, number, she can articulate, which is not something we've necessarily had in the last couple volumes, but I think you're seeing her story really come alive now, because previously, obviously, it was Marco and Alana, and like, what are we going to do with this baby that we have that we want to keep safe, and now it's, Hazel had her first kiss in, you know, this volume, and the way she's describing it, and the way... She's making her her own sense of the world, and we're watching that happen in real time, which yeah. is special. And so, um, you know, I love – in her narrations, I think her narrations going with her own, like, literally speech bubbles are very interesting to see how they correspond in a way that we hadn't seen that before. Right. Yeah, definitely. And then actually chiming in on what you were saying, too, about kind of what she's experienced. I don't know if we talked about it in the second episode, but – her or like in the second book you can kind of see that her upbringing has made her different than the other kids and when i was writing the summary i wrote that she was understandably different than the other other kids because obviously when you see her in the classroom with the teacher she's just like yo this is a monster i drew and he has farts for eyes or something mm-hmm. and i'm like oh my gosh i'm like you are so weird and different and you've seen like so much already that yeah you are understandably kind of out there as opposed to these kids who just want to read and color within the lines you know yeah there's something to be said about her uniqueness as having horns and wings and being really the only person in the known universe to be like that corresponding to her uniqueness in personality as well yeah. yeah oh my gosh russell that's that's spoken like a true college professor and i'm gonna let all the listeners know that russell has his master's degree so fresh masters you heard that that was spoken by a true master true <laughs> um <laughs> who is your favorite cam um oh i didn't even think about that i was like oh i'm gonna go to make a character interaction um my favorite was i think i wrote it down shoot i'm like i forgot <laughs> Uh, I think my my favorite character is either Petrichor or, again, Prince Robot IV because – and especially their dynamic I just loved. But I I found so much like joy and fascination in um, going – literally going to your last point, Hazel's interactions with Petrichor and kind of the – 
the leader that this transgender um, alien has had with um, Hazel. Because Hazel's a girl who is both worlds. And, of course, she would try and find comfort and, like, you know, leadership, mentorship, guidance from someone who she knows is also kind of from two worlds. And I thought that was so, like, pure and innocent, their interactions that they're having. And I thought Petrichor was teaching Hazel valuable lessons and like, be proud of who you are, you know, like wait for no man. And, you know, all, all these lessons, I just found her to be a very unique tone and, and, and she provided a different kind of uh, perspective in this entire story because I was actually listening to a commentary on this from a podcaster. I like Koi Jandro. And he was saying that this story is all about inclusivity. Like saga is about representing everyone. And if you think about it, like if I was casting a movie, like we talked about previously, if I was casting a movie about this, it's like, I would pretty much hire people of color. And so to have a transgender alien kind of, uh, showcase a new perspective in the story. I'm like, wow, absolutely. And so that's, I think it, it provided a really great voice and a unique thing. And then Prince Robot the fourth, I'm just like, Prince Robot the fourth is, um, I think his arc over the entire series is probably my favorite one, which I didn't realize until I, I was writing down who, who was my favorite arc. Because when you look at him in the first volume, who his allegiances are to look in the second volume, who his allegiance who his allegiances are to and how they've changed. And then you look at the third volume because in the second volume, he was at, uh, Marco's throat. He's like, Oh, you're a filthy Mooney. Like I want nothing to do with you. And then next friggin' page, he's, he's with Petricor mm-hmm. and they are a weird relationship, dysfunctional go with the flow kind of thing. And it's like, wow. And then you see his obligations to his son and the ramifications of how royalty and his, terrible father have treated him to make him an ineffective father you know i just thought that they were both so well done so i really liked both of those yeah yeah those are both i mean those both felt like very central characters um i do agree with the especially with petrichor like the you have to appreciate the dynamic between her and hazel because she is someone that can uniquely understand hazel in a way that like really hazel can't be understood that well (laughs) in that sense by anyone else right yeah her parents can't understand her yeah um yeah and so there's something really like beautiful and there's something in that like in petrichor like sort of like disliking hazel you know like it's not just this smooth relationship she gets like really fed up by, (laughs) by hazel and everything and it's um kind of just amusing if anything but then to see like it it makes the bond even clearer right because it's like in spite of topical personality clashes undoubtedly there's a connection between these two characters um and an understanding between them yeah and you know you see hazel's i guess hazel's also kind of a voice of reason to the audience um when you see hey uh petrichor and prince robot are gonna leave that they hazel's like i don't want to lose another babysitter and i'm like as a reader i'm feeling the same way i'm like i love this dynamic so much i don't want to uh, lose you mm-hmm. so um that is the okay who was your favorite interaction character interaction that's a very good question you know 
I don't know if I have like a favorite one-on-one interaction, but the thing that really like stood out to me was when everyone is just together. Like it, it's, <laughs> it's it's so rare. The only people at one point I want to say the only two characters that we're invested in that aren't there um, are Sophie and Gwendolyn, right? Yeah, oh and God. I mean, Lion Cat too, so three. But everyone else is on that planet, right? It's crazy. Um, and obviously, the will has some darker intentions there um, and isn't like... But everyone else is like part of this weird family at some point. And so just the ability for them to like... <laughs> all come together in this like all these characters that have really up to this point started on their own and now they're all together in one place and they're interacting with one another you know it feels it almost feels like this weird mashup of like different television shows having you know it's like jimmy neutron and fairly odd parents that's that's the first one that came to my mind <laughs> oh you mean the jimmy timmy power hour yes that's exactly what i'm talking about um, there was three of those and i watched all of them <laughs> but that type of thing, you know, where you're like, whoa, this is like really cool and interesting that these, all of these characters are now interacting with one another. So that as a whole, I just thought was like so fascinating um, to see like Dolphin Upshur like now interacting with these people that they started out trying to get the story about. And now they're kind of just friends with them and trying to help them out. And kind of their lives were saved by them because they provided them food and sustenance when they were like dying like all of these weird things and so i just i just love that as a whole that whole group dynamic that went on yeah yeah no i i think you're right too and he uh brian came on and i don't know if we give enough credit to fiona staples because i don't know if any other artist could do and convey so appropriately and so um uniquely all of the characters and their dynamics so i'm like Credit Fiona Staples because mm, I think yeah. her world building is unmatched, especially visually. But um, I think, yeah, no, all all of the relationships between the characters too, and how because because we know how Alana and Prince Robot feel about each other. We know how Marco and Prince Robot feel about each other. We know how uh, Hazel tries to watch his TV head while they're while they're sleeping. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, stuff like that, and so I think that. All, all of those er- interactions between characters are so well done. And so um, I, I agree with you because we have very specific feelings that they have towards one another. And then um, mine, my favorite character interaction was, I think after the really heartbreaking moments that we had with Curdy and um, hmm. Hazel, yeah. going in to see Hazel and Squire become a yeah. – a pseudo family and pseudo brother sister. I just thought that was kind of the, the uplifting that we needed because mm-hmm. literally uh, the, the six black pages that we had of emptiness and really like sadness after losing, uh, after Alana's miscarriage, I was like, Ooh, I could really use something to it's. That was after Curdy, I think. Right. Yeah. It was like, it was like, yeah, they never, never got to meet. Mm-hmm. Like, she's like, I can't feel I'm kicking anymore six black pages and then um but then having the squire relationship and squire you can see the difference in their upbringing again uh because squire is very much 
he wants to be like a prince and he wants to be noble. And so the first time they meet is him saying, are you a fair maiden? <laughs> and then he's like telling his father, he's like, I want to meet, you know, I want to blah, blah, blah. And uh, Prince Robert's like, okay, whatever, kid. <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and then he meets Hazel and Hazel's like, our fa- my favorite interaction. I just sent Russell a photo of this inter- the, this panel because it's just my favorite. Is Squire saying, "Are you a fair maiden?" And Hazel's like, "Yeah, but do you know what a fidget spinner is?" I'm like, "Yeah, I think that is perfect." And like, people can critique it because they want they think that it dates the story, but I'm like, "Oh, that is just spoken like a true parent, you know." I'm right. Brian came on having kids who are using fidget spinners. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, it was it was. It, and then I, I actually think what they did really well, too, is that, yes, they had this big romantic moment of, yes, we can be a family. But I think the next interaction we see with them is them going blow for blow fighting because homie uh, Squire took Ponk Conk. Yeah. And they were at each other's guts because guess what? That's what kids do. You mm-hmm. know, they're so visceral. And so I right. liked it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. That was that was a really nice interaction. I was like, I love that, too but I couldn't say because I knew it was going to be yours. <laughs> Russell's like no spoilers, but also all the spoilers. Um, okay. There was a major deaths in this story and especially this volume. And I, by major deaths, I actually mean incredibly major deaths that happened. So is there any one that uh, stuck out to you more than the others? I mean, they all hurt, right? Yeah. They, they all hurt so much. They all hurt in different ways. Yeah. I, I think, I think just the mark, I mean, it was, I think the Marco robot, the fourth dying within like a few panels of one another, both of those together, just, it's like, it's kind of a crushing thing. It's like a lot to process, you know, like when you're reading this story and these two central characters that have had so much time on these pages are now just done. So I I think those stood out to me. Um, And I I was even trying to like kind of process those, those deaths, I think a little bit of just like, what was the meaning here? What do I, what do I see as like, yeah, like the meaning here? Cause I I think, um, I think with, again, with Brian K. Vaughn, there's, there's a lot of times, something really tragic to be said about a lot of these character deaths. Uh, one thing that stood out for me is that I'm like reading this and I mean, for me, if Marco's going to die and I'm writing this story, Marco's dying on the last page, right? Like if he's going to die, that's what a tragedy is in like the very conventional understanding Going back to where we left off, um, you were talking about Marco. You were talking about Marco's example of Shakespearean tragedy and how his death kind of goes against that. Could you elaborate on how killing your protagonist in part three of potentially five goes against the true uh, tragic storytelling form? Uh, yeah. I mean, I think it's just like. 
like because like, i guess we've been talking sort of about shakespeare right and it's, it's like okay if you read like all of the tragedies or something like even the ones where it's like i don't know even the ones where characters die at the in the middle or something there's always like the the big tragic death at the end and, and a lot of them that's just like the the standard procedure right you're like you're in act five you're getting towards the end of the wire someone you love is about to die if you're reading a Shakespeare tragedy. Right. And usually that's like the, the marker there. Um, and, and maybe people will die along the way, but like the people that you're maybe most invested in tend to stay around until act five and then they'll get axed. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but what's kind of shocking is, I mean, you want to say that the two people, I mean, maybe you're most, most invested in Hazel cause Hazel's the narrator, I suppose. But besides her, like the two people you're, who the story has been fundamentally about up to this point have been Marco and Alana. And so, yeah, it's like, like I was caught off guard by Marco's death because I, I think I'm just operating. And I think probably most of the audience is operating under like pretty normative, um, a normative understanding of what a tragedy would be. It's kind of just ingrained in our bones. So like the most tragic thing to do ever is to kill your character on the last page. Right. And so, um, that's not what happens, right? All of a sudden, Marco's just dead. And you're like, whoa, what happened? Oh, so you're yeah. sort of caught off guard by that um, because he still incorporates, he still gives you everything you want in this character so that you love them and that you um, understand them before he kills them. Um, so you- I think you're right. And actually, when when I was kind of re-going over Isabel's death, um you kind of there is sort of a completion i think i think he he did a great job of completing their arcs uh before he uh i guess put them to rest because he killed um in isabel she she has that moment with prince robot the fourth right after hazel and her like hazel yells at her isabel comes in to prince robot the fourth and she says pretty much these people have given me the galaxy you know what I mean? Because she was supposed to being being someone or a ghost attached to Hazel's soul, she has now the ability to leave her planet because mm-hmm. she is uh, attached to Hazel, and so by by giving uh by that attachment, she's able to see the world in a way that she never would have been able to, and so she's so grateful. And you have this big upwelling kind of tender moment really quick while she's talking about how much she loves this family. And that kind of is a conclusion to her arc, you know. They mm-hmm. she has reached fulfillment um through these people. And so you see the same thing in Marco where he's constantly fighting his his violent side and he's afraid of who he is. And so I wanted to ask you, do you think his pacifism was his downfall? But I think yes in the best way though. Right. Yeah, it, it's kind of. <laughs> Russell's like, you guys couldn't see his face, but he was like trying to piece together what made total sense to me, and he's like, mm, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think I think I, I'm tracking with that. It, it's it's that Marco definitely died because of his ideals, because if he were to, it, it's the pattern we've seen up to this point where he impulsively is violent. He impulsively is a pretty aggressive person. Yeah. Um, and then has to check himself or maybe sometimes either even other people check him. Um, and then things are 
Like he can be like, okay, that's right. I don't like violence. And then he'll like kind of go against that. And here you see this kind of pure moment of him having nothing in the world stopping him from just like killing this person in front of him. And then he backs off because he's kind of in that moment where you see him like looking out to space, you, you have this sense of he has this piece of being content in his pacifism there, right? Yeah. And the, and it is directly because of that that he's then stabbed in the back, right? Because he didn't take advantage of the moment in his aggression and, and kill the will, right? Um, so I, I think it's very much so kind of um, meant to give us a, a sense of like raise that question are your ideals worth dying for right and maybe some of them are not and maybe some of them are and it's kind of like begging the reader to ask that in themselves right which which of my ideals are like i'm so sure and i must stand for them that even if it were to compromise my life in some sense would i i mean you know intellectually say now maybe not in the actual instance but yeah. would i intellectually say that i want to defend this you know yeah and that's, and that's a point that Brian K. Vaughn really makes in throughout the story, and especially this volume, uh, whether we were talking about it last time or the time that got deleted. Um, he, Marco talks about wanting to be a writer and having a uh, a nonviolent pr- profession, and Upshur goes up to him and says, "No, people have died because of what I've written, so you can't have nonviolence and be a writer." Like, people are willing to die for ideas. Mm-hmm. So, and then I think he kind of alludes to that, to the, uh, wh- what do you call that planet? I call them little, like, bush babies on the, um, the, the planet Fang. The, like, oh, like, like, like Curdy and. The, I just think of them as, like, the, some rodent type species. I'm like, I feel like <laughs> I they're an know. animal. I don't even, I looked up a bush baby and they really don't look like, look quite like that. But I'm like, uh, oh, that's. As as hard as I want to look, yeah. <laughs> so the um, you know, they were willing, frankly, to die for their faith in this. You know, I think it's his commentary on religion, mm-hmm. but um, I think that they were really willing to die for this ultimate power that they found um, compelling, and it actually did lead to their downfall. You know, what I mean, that was. Would you consider that an ideal? Well, yeah, definitely. Yeah, but, and I mean, it's like, uh, there's a very weird meta conversation to be had about that, right? Of like, you know, you could definitely say, well, in terms of being in this world and not know, like, you, I mean, it's the same thing about us today, right? Like, we have our understanding of the reality around us. Um, When we're reading this narrative, um, one looks absurd, right? Like, the religious idealism looks absurd, and marco's pacifism looks at least significantly more admirable than the religious idealism yeah yeah but both end in death oh my gosh that's so brilliant so like it's sort of to me it feels like well who's right then you know uh, you can say, like, because we can look at that as, like, a, oh, in a, according to our own ideals and kind of our own morality or whatever, you want to be the pacifist person. The other person was sort of ignorant and just, like, affirming truths that went against the reality around them. Yeah. But then at the end of the day, it's like there's something <laughs> which is sort of uh, 
defeatist <laughs> and, and, and nihilist to say, but like it is. But you know, I think the the areas of gray that we, I think I think it's kind of like it. It's taking a gray perspective on both. It's like not that any like nothing is important, but like that they are mutually important, and one is not necessarily more important than the other. You know. Yeah, and, and there's a sense of unknowing that we have about these things, right? Like, which one is ultimately, which one was ultimately the right answer, or which were either even the right answer? Were they both wrong just because they led to death? You know, it's like that. That grayness is a good. The, the, I think there should be a tension of the reader's inability to know certainty that, like, kind of accompanies you on your journey reading this. I think I think you're right too because. We find potentially, I don't know, maybe this is just a, a, a blanket statement that I'll, I'll think about and will be untrue later, you know, with deeper thought. But I feel like the people that are actual enemies are those that have taken an absolute perspective. Because if this story is a critique on an intergalactic war where two sides have their feet in the sand, like the line has been drawn which side they're on – those are the people that are constant, constantly chasing our protagonists. Mm -hmm. And so it's a critique where, yeah, maybe not everyone has all the answers and it's a lot more shades of gray than we actually believe, you know, or, or than, than are actually what you think are true. And so to see his critique on people that have drawn their line in the sand, you know what I mean, in, in, in pursuit of ideals or having a stance on ideals leading to their death, I don't even know how I'm trying to finish this, but like, by looking yeah. at that, it's it, it it is a it it's a stance almost, you know, or it or it's a stance towards neutrality, mm -hmm. not nihilism. Well, yeah, yeah, and I think there's um, yeah, there's something there. I, I totally am in line with that, and I'm even thinking in terms of like the saga characters of like it feels sort of like I mean, because Brian K. Vaughan is very intentional of sort of saying either side of this conflict is is wrong or there's no there there's are wrongs yeah. yeah it's like there's no hero they're both kind of villains who like either like am i not going along no, 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 like okay the, yes whatever, yes the land landfall and, and wreath yeah exactly like no one's <laughs> on either side in terms of like the military people in charge i don't think either side has been depicted as like oh here's here's a good person you know like the people in the like higher up positions are pretty like messed up, you know? Yeah. Um, and it almost even feels like I, I've, when you were talking, it, it reminded me of Prince robot of like, yeah, here's someone who represented a higher up position who slowly descended into the more, I don't know as much as I thought I knew the truth that I previously upheld. Like that's the whole Petrichor thing, right? Like the truth that I previously upheld, I'm actually going to compromise a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, and I'm going to like, go against those willingly. And I, I feel like he's, to some extent, he's rewarded by that, right? Like he yeah. sort of has like a, a rebirth or a revitalization in light of that. Um, but yeah, that was just, yeah. and I think, and I think that's why he's my favorite character because you see someone who is so staunch in their beliefs and their position in this war that he actively ch ch uh, like chose against those, mm -hmm. uh, original beliefs, which right. is, um, fulfilling and nice and fun and we we, we want to see that right so uh right. He, when you i just think that when you look at a character the reason i i guess i like him the most is his arc is so 
bombastic. He he isn't who he was, and we see that in each very explicitly in each of the volumes that we er, that we read. Because you know, at first he was, all right, I gotta go merc these people just so I can be with my pregnant wife, mm-hmm. and then oh, my planet isn't that great, and I hate my father, and now oh, hmm. I, I I defy my planet, and I go now into. Like, I just want to be a father to my son. Yeah. Because he, he has nothing left waiting for him, you know? Yeah. That's good. Yeah. I was, I was like, what a neat little tangent. Um, okay. Next, we're going to... Let's talk about some of the deaths. <laughs> I had no easy transition for that. So mm-hmm. is there, uh, like, a a death? We talked about Marco's death. Um, but what about... I guess Prince Europa the Fourth or Alana's deaths, or sorry, Alana's still alive. Spoiler for something that hasn't happened yet. <laughs> Maybe by issue one or two. <laughs> Is there anything that has happened with Alana's miscarriage or um, Prince Robot the Fourth's death that like kind of rang true in the tragedy to you or stuck out to you about those examples? Hmm. Yeah, uh, hmm. that's good. I, I think even like kind of based on what we were just saying, it, it feels like there's something. I don't know. Like I, I'm even because to me, like it, I kind of pair Marco and Robot's death together, maybe because they happen within like two pages of each other and stuff. Um, but like it, it's interesting to kind of reflect on those deaths and to think like about what we've just been saying of Robot Robot's death sort of feels more tragic maybe because he it felt like dang you heard it here first people (laughs) (laughs) but because it felt like he's like the pendulum's moving upward you know like he he was in a valley for so long and it's like it's finally seeming like he's about to start going up a hill towards something like some better like he's about to have his identity um whatever disguised (laughs) and he's gonna live with his son and petrichor and yeah, yeah. things will be good right um and so there's something that's really tragic about the the sense of like longing and seeing the thing that i like the ideal that's going to happen so i guess with robot maybe it's not even that it's more tragic maybe it's just different to me it just feels like it cuts deeper because it's like you're expe- you're expecting redemption and greatness and happiness and it doesn't happen marco we respect, I mean, you respect that character as a whole more, right? Marco hasn't done as much shady stuff as Robot, maybe, even mm-hmm. though he's still sort of shady. But for him, the tragedy is uh, wife and daughter are now without husband and father. It's like a more traditional sense of tragedy in that. Like, it's more of like a role tragedy that he's abandoning roles in his family that are important rather than like a narrative tragedy that's robot experiences if that makes sense yeah and that's uh i think that's also very very true with um what we were talking about earlier and i actually upon thinking about it i think prince robot the fourth actually had a really redemptive arc that was kind of true to his character um when when you're talking about he was on the upswing think about it he kind of got what he'd always wanted in the first place he wanted to be with i guess the woman he loved and or or the being that he loved and he and his child is that not what he got and he kind of honored himself 
because and correct me if I'm wrong, but he lies to uh, the Will, mm-hmm. or I guess at this point Billy, to save Marco and Alana and their families. Oh, yeah, totally. So it's like he is trying to honor. Um, he's honoring the people that he was sent to go kill. And that is not who he was. And I think that's kind of a completed, I guess, narrative for him. And maybe the tragedy is that it was incomplete because he died. But there's a, there's a full, you know, upswing there for him. And right. a, I think a good button to end his story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I guess I just mean, like, I I want him to rest in that, I guess. It feels like he's only had the upswing for, like, two weeks or something. You know, <laughs> like, I want him to just statively have more time to be a father and to have those relationships, you know, like, but I do definitely, he does end at a point where maybe it's the high, like, cause maybe the story keeps going without that. And he just screws up more and things suck. Right. So he ends on like the highest point that we've seen him at in these three books, I would say. It's almost very reminiscent of our boy or of my boy, uh, Dango. Because, you know, mm-hmm. he was trying to redeem himself right. at the very end. Not that they're equivalent, but also, dang, they put that television to our heads. That's <laughs> all I'm saying. <laughs> You're like, Karen, that's a species thing. And all like, of them. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm just saying. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I I think it's a good, like, upon looking at that, and, and you and I talk about this all the time in, in Brian K. Vaughn's use of tragedy is that he very much so earns it. It's never like, mm-hmm. yeah, in, in your last example, last episode, you were talking about how on in sitcoms or, or television shows, they will add a new character in for a couple episodes, and then that character will die, and it's kind of lazy. But Brian K. Vaughn just gives us these moments with characters that are so personal and personable, where it's like we empathize with their loss, and it's never cheap. It's never... Uh, I think he's he's a very meticulous planner uh, over the arcs that are going to happen and how characters are going to affect one another. And so I feel that with every character that we've had and lost now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, I, I mean, I. It almost feels like if you're from a writing perspective, I'm imagining if you're if you're writing characters in just for the sake of killing them. That is that is lazy, and as a writer, you're actually not allowing yourself to invest in your own characters by, you know, flirting with the possibility of them dying. They're like your staples that will never perish, right? And so there's sort of something that's uh, impersonal about that. Whereas, like, how how vulnerable of a thing is that as a writer to build up this character, give them so many panels of your time... And then to have to release that character. Yeah. Right? Uh, there's something that's, yeah, sort of earned in that. That w- When I'm reading, especially Marco or Robot, um, their deaths, there's there's a loss there. I'm sort of left wondering, what do, what do we do now? Like, here's we just got axed two characters that have taken up so much of the yeah. the time here. Um, and there is there is a loss there rather than, you know... Um, who's even a side character? I don't even know at this point. Rather, Isabel? Are that, wait, Isabel. a side character that's still alive? Well, a side character... Yeah, I get. I mean, like, like, there's goose. Not, But even <laughs> Isabel, like, gets a lot of time. <laughs> I yeah, get. No, I, know. Know, I no, Maybe I, Frendo? Like, if they just killed Frendo's Frendo the after... <laughs> like, 
it's like there's a, something totally different and it is like I do bring it back to the whole whichever insert TV drama here. How I Met Your Mother. Is, are there a lot of characters in How I Met Your Mother that are killed off in the first episode they're introduced? Okay, I redact that. Yeah, that's Scrubs. A, I, is that true? I love Scrubs I and know. it is true, but I like it. I haven't really watched either of these. I was expecting more of like a some sort of crime scene show or something. Scrubs is a crime scene show. They work in a hospital. That's not a crime scene. <laughs> the crime is the character deaths, Russ. Also, I love Scrubs, and I like rewatched it. It's it's from two thousand three, or it came out in two thousand. It was like seven seasons long, seven good seasons. The eighth season is terrible. Mm. No, the eighth season is wonderful. The ninth season is terrible. Oh. <laughs> and um, anyways, I'm a fan, and I'm not knocking it, but there are definitely some characters that are initiated in and then killed off because they get some sort of disease or whatever happens happens. Oh yeah. So okay. Well then, that's an example I'm totally unfamiliar with. But it sounds like sounds like a nice one. Oh my! And you feel cheapened, right? You no, feel sort of cheapened. I, I'm just very emotional when I watch those shows. Like Scrubs makes me cry. But maybe I don't know. Maybe it is cheap. Maybe it isn't. Like the formula. Maybe it wasn't. It wasn't cheap back then, but it worked. But I think for the right. sake of this example, whether or not you're a Scrubs fan, you can kind of agree with the structure that. That has yeah, yeah. It's the same thing with like uh, – I was just talking. This is sort of a different example, but it feels related. Go for it. Is uh, Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Have you watched Brooklyn? I like Brooklyn Nine-Nine. I've only seen like the first three, not even all the third season. So again, I'm a same. little bit uninformed coming into what I'm about to say here. Yeah. But it always kind of like just makes me cringe a little bit where they just say stuff is true and you just have to believe it now. They're yeah. Like, oh, remember how like – you're lactose intolerant. And then like, that's the thing that you have to remember for this episode. Now it's like, there's something cheap about that rather than like showing you through, even with like some of the relationships, right? They're like, you guys are in love. And it's like, what do you mean you're in love? You've only been in love the last three minutes of this episode and never before, you know? And so you're so funny. Some things, but I, I guess so <laughs> stuff so like that, funny. there's like narratival work that I'm expecting writers to do. And it's the same thing with deaths, right? Like, if you're going to kill someone, like, do it the way Marco and Robot were killed. <laughs> yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. Write about them for 500 pages. And, and <laughs> <laughs> you need 54 episodes of your sitcom before a protagonist can die. You've heard it here first. <laughs> I mean, it's it's nice, right? <laughs> it's a it worked. It worked out for us. Oh, my gosh. Dang. We're going to get some hate mail, but it's fine. It's fine. I'm not bashing Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Solid show. Okay, Russell. So I guess we're winding down. I just have a few more questions for you. Um, question number one. Now that we don't have any more um, issues of this series, is there anything that you were looking forward to happening? And we talked about this briefly. Like, what do you want to happen in Volume 3? But now that, like, at this point, there's no at, – at the time of this recording, these are all the issues of Saga that have been written and published and distributed. So is there anything that you want to see moving forward? Um, yeah. Uh, well, the the thing that I think as I, I closed book three that I was, like, curious about, like, the little cliffhanger thing that I was like, oh, how is this going to go, was concerning, like, Squire. Because Squire ends book three as an orphan. He's now an orphan. And so it's kind of like, what's what's the dynamic now right like he's had all this time sort of being under goose or and it's like goose and friendo yeah and so it's 
But there's really, I mean, there's so many directions that could they could go here, right? Like Goose is Goose been the father figure, so now he's going to continue to sort of be a father figure because he was during Robot's absence. Or Petrichor feels some sort of responsibility, like what? Or Alana? I mean, we had that whole scene where Robot had those weird vibes towards Alana and was like. Oh, I know. I only feel like this because I know you'd be the perfect mother for my kid. And so there's some weird. Well, he was going. on fadeaway, and <laughs> yeah, but still, like, yeah, maybe yeah. foreshadowing. I don't know. Like, you're um, not. No, he's unstable. Like he was. You can kind of tell when he's like. And maybe you correct me if I'm wrong, but he was talking to the doll. He was talking to Pont Kong, who he stole, who Hazel will never get again. Who traveled across the universe mm-hmm. to be with Hazel. Yeah. The journey of Pont Kong is going to be a mini series in the future. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding, um, but. He stole Punk Conk and was like that. The doll is kind of what motivated him, I'd argue, or his. He wanted to be a knight, and so he went to go to the kingdom where he'd be welcomed with open arms. And it felt I got vibes that he was talking to the doll, and that was what got him to leave. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So he's unstable. So he's unstable. <laughs> yes. But so I'm. So I guess all of that to say is I'm I'm like very much looking forward to whatever the heck is going to happen with Squire next. Yeah, I, I personally think that he's going to be a part of their family. Mm-hmm. But who? But who's like, are they just, everyone's taking a parental role? Oh my gosh, you're right. I didn't even like, think about it because there's no Marco anymore. Yeah, it's like, I don't know. Because Hazel declared him as her new little brother, which I'm like, oh, love that for you. Mm-hmm. Even though they're like the same age. He's probably, whatever, a year. Nah, not six months younger than her. Mm, sure. Well, it's, they, it's hard to tell because he's got a TV on his head. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, you're not you're speaking the truth. <laughs> um, so, my I guess my next question: or wait, what, Wouldn't he he be a little bit younger than her? Yeah, like six because he he was in yeah, yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Princess's Belly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. When Sounds they started the, when she was born, and so whatever, maybe let's six to it. twelve months. Yeah, Sounds six good. to twelve months. Um. My next question, or not my next question, my, what I'm looking forward to next is Alana, because we have not seen a lot mm. of Alana's journey. We, and you and I, like, we spent a long time, I guess, you know, as two males reading about a family and empathizing or, like, I guess, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, uh, relating to mm. the the male protagonist who we've seen the most of, we've seen a lot of Marco's journey and now we have seen his journey kind of come to a close. So not even kind of, he's, he's dead now, but, right. But like we've met Marco's parents. We have met all these, uh, we've seen his upbringing. The real thing that we kind of know is that, uh, Alana was like a punk and I don't mean punk as in like, I think she's like grunge girl, like had piercings and wore all black and was discussed by all men. And, you know, she had her fadeaway kind of deal happen, and mm-hmm. but I don't think we've given her the right amount of time to let her shine, and so right, and even well, it, and so you were kind of making a point too about the family member people that we've met from each side, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We we talked about that uh, off off audio, but. We've met we've met Marco's parents. We have seen his relationship with his parents. We have not seen that for Alana, mm-hmm. you know. And I think that Alana, we only the only thing we know about her father is that he married a student, an equivalent, an alumnus with 
with sure. Alana. Someone the same age as Alana. They went to the high school together, <laughs> but Alana – that's Alana's new stepmom or whatever. Mm-hmm. So we that's all we know. We, we didn't even interact with the father. So mm-hmm. seeing that uh, – I'm excited to see more of Alana, and I think I'm really excited to go see more of Special Agent Gale because I think he is going to be a very sinister character. I think he's the villain of the story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I am very excited for that. Okay, Raz. He definitely keeps showing up. And it's like, ooh, why do you keep showing up? Well, I think you made it. You made the point at the very beginning that kind of just like light bulb on moment for me, you know, which is he is worse than Prince Robot was. He's the one who's like, you need to go on this mission for the sake of your people when Prince Robot was kind of disinterested. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so, and then he's the one that everyone's seeing correlate with, you know, kind of perpetuating the war. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and so I'm like, ooh, you're really bad. Mm-hmm. And he has yeah. bat wings, so he's for sure evil. Oh, true, true. They <laughs> got the symbolism just in the the color of the wings. He's evil. <laughs> and he even like, like he's the one who tried to stop Upshur and Doff too. I'm pretty sure. From, I think he sent the stock after them, mm-hmm. or not the stock, uh, Sophie, the brand. Yeah, yeah, the brand. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um. So I guess my last two questions for you are number one. What would you rate this series out of 10? Hmm. Not number one. Yeah. It's you know what's, what's nice is that we're re-recording this, so I get to change my answer a little bit. <laughs> Russell last <laughs> ended with, I think, a 9.2. Uh, it was either 9.2 or 9.0. I think I, I ended with like a 9.2, and then I tried to like bump it, but it felt like... But now you've outed me for what my original score was, and so now I can't bump it up like I was... You can change it. Yeah, but you just said what my past score was. Okay, so. Russ. I can delete that part. <laughs> but you're not going <laughs> to. We don't know. Russ, what was your last score? Uh, oh, or what's your, no, what's your new score then? If it's you're... probably 9.5. Probably it's probably 9.5. That's a great new score. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I, I thought about it more in, <laughs> since that initial. So I still stand by the, I guess, idea that I can't make it a 10 because <laughs> why the last one is a 10. And that's just my that's my favorite thing that I've read in the comic world since you've introduced me. And part of that is maybe maybe Saga gets up to a 10 because it needs, uh, like, after book four and five, who knows? Because I don't have the ending. Yeah. So it's kind of hard for me to feel settled with it and give it, like, a perfect score or something. But uh, it's my second favorite thing I've ever read so far. And so it's a nine five. Second favorite comic he's ever read yes. so far. I'm comic. like, I'm like, dang, Russell, this medium just got validated <laughs> to you. Um, my score has not changed because it can't go any higher. I give this series a perfect ten because I, I, I don't know. I, I think this is a masterclass that Brian K. Vaughn puts on, and really like he's firing on all cylinders. Like the art and and Fiona Staples. I don't want to overlook Fiona Staples' art and the way that she is able to build these beautiful scenes and like depict everything and all the crazy, crazy sci-fi space opera flavor that's going on. I'm like, it's perfect. Mm-hmm. And so I don't want to devalidate what, um, she is doing and pulling off because Brian K. Vaughn is great and everything. And he's obviously his structure and his body of work. We are huge fans of, but what Fiona Stables is doing here with this family and the way that they, they are depicting them and I guess fulfilling his his work for her or, or co-creating, you know what I mean? Co-world building that they're doing is unparalleled and I think it is a master class. So 
And I also think that they just they really depict the human experience and through these larger than life fictional characters. And I think it's it's perfect. I wouldn't change a single thing. And uh, some of the statutes that I put upon um, grading or uh, sharing comics is number one, being able to. Am I able to share this with someone? You know what I mean? Do I do I want to share this? And this is a story that like, oh, you guys don't understand comics, or you, I won't, I want to bring validation to this medium. Here you go. All right, you don't think you could, you don't think you understand. Here is what this medium is capable of. <laughs> um, or like when it comes to just like sharing sharing what I'm interested in or like sharing this medium with people mm-hmm. too in a, in a way where like, hey, you don't need to know 80 years of continuity. Here's a brand new awesome story for you. So I feel you. Right. So it, I, Which is like kind of how you introduced it to me in the first place. Yeah. Well, I was like, <laughs> oh, I want to talk about someone. I think Russell can appreciate this. It feels very Shakespearean, you know? So anyways, Russ, here we are. Last question. Based on saga so far or what they what we have waiting for them in the future what would you have them read or watch or what other piece of entertainment would you give them because if they like this or they or maybe they've you want to illustrate this to them Mm. yeah well you know what i've actually like within this conversation that we just had i think i've like tacked one on that i was like sort of thinking of I'll save that for in a second. But the the initial two things, I mean, I think Brian K. Vaughn is a nice, like, author of tragedy. And it feels like he's continuing a line of tragedy in some way. Like, it feels like, that, like, for me, one of the staples for Western tragedy, when it's done well, is probably Shakespeare. Um and so King Lear, Shakespeare, King Lear is one mm-hmm. of my favorite tragedies that, that really like, uh, I don't know. It feels like it has some parallels to, to saga and the type of tragedy there. So that'd be one thing I'd recommend. Um, and also one of the like champions of tragedy, I guess, in Western literature where tragedy is probably largely forgotten yeah. is uh, Cormac McCarthy. So I think like All the Pretty Horses, Cormac McCarthy does some really excellent stuff um, kind of in the same way um, in a totally different Western feel. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then the one thing that I was thinking of, uh, maybe this is a sin to say this. Um, I'm going to recommend Marvel movies. Am I allowed <laughs> to do that? Yeah, I guess. <laughs> uh, well, I just think like even in the conversation of Robot, his sort of almost deconstruction over the course of however many like issues here uh to me that's like it it, it's reminiscent of the captain america movies for me wow the deconstruction of a character over a set of films to where he film one captain america and i mean i guess you could say endgame captain america yeah yeah are totally different people really um and it's a fascinating thing to to witness and to compare in the same way i think that robot it's a fascinating thing to compare robot on the last page versus robot when we first are introduced to him on the first page yes because robot has such a great arc i'm like i'm such a fan of him and what they did with him it, it was really well, well done masterful so 
Mm. I feel that my recommendations honestly would just be indie comics. This is the first comic that got me into indie books and whether, you know, it's hard now for me to understand, uh, image this publishing platform as a indie comic label because they're, they're just so huge. You know, Mm -hmm. I'd say image now is up there with the big, big two DC and Marvel. So Go check out – I really like – this book got me to go read Deadly Class. This book got me to go read um, all of the Ed Brubaker Criminal Universe stuff, mm-hmm. um, all super good. And so go check those out uh, and the rest of Brian K. Vaughn stuff because he's not he's not done. You know, mm-hmm. he's uh, – we love Why the Last Man. We love – I liked Ex Machina. So go check those out and maybe some, some other creator-owned stuff. Also, DC Vertigo label. Oh, it's Vertigo Comics are an imprint of DC, or at least they were, and they are so good. So go check those out too. Um, already, Russ. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast now, like a hundred times because we re-recorded, <laughs> and you guys can definitely expect to see Russell come back sooner rather than later. But we are going to give him a break <laughs> because of uh. How his his frequency. So stay tuned next week to check out my really good friend Jesse Watson and I talk about Firepower by Chris Somney and Robert Kirkman. And remember to go follow us on Instagram at Cameron Reads Comics. Thank you. We will see you later.